play on, and there could be a third goal here. Dovbik scores 3-1. Game, set, and match for Ukraine, who lift the hearts of a devastated nation. That was a week ago, when the Ukrainian national soccer team upset Scotland to move one step closer to making the World Cup this fall. And right, Thompson, you have spent the last month or so covering Ukraine, the soccer team, as Ukraine, the country, is literally fighting for its existence. So why are things like sports and World Cup qualifying even worth dwelling on right now? The war, as much as anything, is about memory and identity and Russia trying to erase the very idea of Ukraine-ness. Sports, at its core, is an expression of tribalism and of identity. And so, you know, the reason it matters, if it matters, is probably twofold. One, it's a pleasant distraction. It's a win for a place that sure could use a win. It's also a way to stand up and say, uh, Ukraine does exist, and the reason I know that is because we are playing in the World Cup and you're not. Coach Petrikov, who's the head coach, 64 years old, the war started and his children begged him to leave Kyiv and he refused. He said, I was born here and I'll die here. As a boy, he grew up fishing on the banks, the river that runs through the middle of the town. His favorite thing in the world to do is just to walk to all of the old churches and monasteries and cathedrals that are all over the city center and to go and uh, sit in a quiet bench and just think he loves his city and he refused to leave it. And he tried to go join the army. And they were like, look, man, we don't need 64-year-old privates. You don't know anything about fighting. You do know about football. What you can do is go coach your team. You can take us to the World Cup. I mean, he took this job as seriously as it could be taken. And he saw it as his duty. You know, he has been trying to make it to the World Cup and do it, you know, in a very pro-Ukrainian way. I mean, the... The lingua franca of the of the Ukrainian football community has always been Russian because, you know, this was part of the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, the Russians sort of made Russian the language of the cities of Ukraine, where if you spoke uh, Ukrainian, it was sort of seen in like speaking with a real thick southern accent. You know, you were sort of seeing as being from the farm or the villages. And so everybody spoke Russian, even the Ukrainians. And... Uh, that's been going on for a very long time. And when Petrikov got the job, he decided specifically, this was before the war, that he would start speaking Ukrainian. And so he does all of his press conferences in Ukrainian. His players followed their lead. They do all of their press conferences in Ukrainian. And so, I mean, there are a lot of really great journalists covering this who know a lot more about this than I do. But there are thousands of ways in which identity is under siege in which the Ukrainians are responding by the elevation and the celebration of every little piece of Ukrainian identity from big things like language to small things like soccer teams. The language we use to typically describe sports is an all-you-can-eat buffet of very dramatic military metaphors. A game is do or die. A player is a field general. An arm is a rocket. A throw is a bomb. And on and on and on. 
But then there are sports stories where symbolism and reality converge, where war is the actual physical context for a game. And the blitzes and bullets and trenches and tanks are completely non-metaphorical. So today, we follow Wright Thompson as he follows the Ukrainian national soccer team in wartime with a lot more than just the World Cup on the line. I'm Pablo Torre. It is Thursday, June 9th. This is ESPN Daily. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Anejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Right, Thompson, I've been tracking you across the world, across Europe. I discovered that you were on the Ukrainian national soccer team beat for for a while now. When did you get on the road for this story? Where did it start? It started mid-May, and we met the team for a friendly. They played uh, in Emboli, just west of Florence in Italy. And then we drove, uh, followed them to a friendly they played in Croatia, and then went to their training camp in Slovenia. And then we split our crew. I went to Kiev, and Russ, the E60 producer, uh, went to Scotland, and then we met back up in Wales. We've been doing this for a while. There's a guy named Andy Todos who is based in London, and Andy and I are, I think, the only two English-language Ukrainian football beat writers right now. So I, we, I've been doing my best uh, Seth Wickersham impersonation, except this is Ukrainian soccer instead of the NFL. Yeah, infiltrating the New England Patriots, owning that beat is one thing, right? Getting into Kiev, into Ukraine itself is something that I didn't even realize that you could do in the first place, right? So how does that even work? Well, you, uh, you have very good security, and uh, I will not name the man, but you don't want to fight him. I was like, have you ever, you know, like, where all have you been? And he was like, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen. I was like, okay, all right. So what you do is you fly to Krakow, and you get picked up at the airport and uh, driven across the border to Lviv, where you spend the night. And then a different group of people picks you up in the morning and drives you into Kiev. So from Poland into Kiev by car. Yeah, you can't fly, obviously. And so you you drive. And, uh, you know, it's the drive is interesting in itself because, you know, you're driving past the road and in many ways— a country at war looks exactly like a country at peace. Mm. They're breaking the ground. It's time to plant. They're, you know, seeds coming up. They're draft horses pulling plows. Uh, they're little restaurants. They're cafes. They're gas stations where you can get a cup of coffee and a hot dog. And then they're burned out Russian tanks, you know, that you can just stop. If you wanted to, you could climb in them. And as you approached Kiev, the thing that I didn't really get from the newspaper stories was that when you you could see where they stopped the Russians outside of Kiev. What do you mean you could see where they stopped? You could just see the burned out 
Russian tanks, and like this is where the line of advance was halted. Mm. And from there, you could see the skyline of Kiev, and that kind of takes your breath away. I mean, the Russian army got close enough to see it, and and got stopped, and uh, you know that sort of sends a chill up your spine. So the idea that there is a a de facto border that is composed of bombed out Russian tanks. Right. I, I mean, you're describing a city that is seemingly on some level acclimated to a, a, a nightmare, an apocalypse of sorts. Well, the, the casualness with which everybody is just getting on with it was really interesting. It made me, I've always wondered about like, how did people handle the blitz in London? And now I know it's that the human animal is capable of just incredible adjustment. You know, that this is what life is now, let's live it. I mean, Kiev was a fully functioning city. It wasn't dangerous at all. You would go out of the city and just see horrifying things. I mean, stuff that, you know, I mean, I don't want to make too much of it, but like, the, I definitely no, want to, I, I won't ever forget, you know. I mean, I, uh, we, we met this guy in Bucha, which is a city that has seen just incredible devastation, uh, you know, according to some NGO and journalist reports, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people murdered by the Russian army, you know, rapes, torture rooms, dead bodies found with their hands tied behind their back. And we met this guy, the Russians had busted in his house looking for stuff. He and his mother and some neighbors hid in their chicken coop, which he showed us, very matter-of-factly. And a Russian soldier looked in the chicken coop, but just didn't look far enough and missed him. And so that's why he was alive. And he just walked us down this road and sort of climbed underneath a fence into a field and walked us over and pointed at a hole. And we were like, what's that? And he was like, it's a mass grave. And we were like, what? And he said, yes, I watched my neighbors bury these people. There were four people buried here. They buried them very quickly because they didn't want to get seen. When this war is over, there will be volumes and volumes written about the love and kindness and humanity and dignity shown to strangers by fellow Ukrainians just because they were their citizens and they were their brothers and sisters. And so people buried these strangers just because they thought it was the human thing to do. And then about, you know, a month later, people came back and exhumed the grave and buried them properly. And the blankets they were buried in were still in the hole. And they had blood on them. We just stood there and stared and was like, well, what do you do now? You know, and there are those holes, both covered and uncovered, real and metaphorical, all over that country. And that's just key. That's not even talking about the east of the country, which is just, I mean, they're in trenches like it's World War I, lobbing artillery at each other. And it's its just brutal and violent and deadly. Zelensky said 60 to 100 Ukrainian soldiers are dying a day. And you get the sense that this is the thing that could drag on for a very, very long time. Well, it's been a game really like no other in modern times, this. But both teams have a footballing job to do now. Ukraine, well, 
It's obvious their motivation to lift the spirits of their people by maybe reaching the World Cup. To do that, they have to win here tonight and then away in Wales on Sunday. So Ukraine has two matches that they need to win to get into the World Cup, right? And the first one was against Scotland, who was favored to win. And I know you actually watched that match from inside Kiev in the apartment of some local residents. What was that like? An air raid siren went off about 45 minutes before the match. And I was really nervous. And our translator was pretty nervous. And then I looked over at the guys we were watching the game with. And they didn't give a shit, and nobody moved. One guy said, you know, we should pray. Uh, My translator was like, I really hate this sound. And everybody else just, you know, ate beef jerky and drank beer and made jokes about it. You know, there was one of the guys watching the game with us was a soldier who was home on leave from the front. And he just started pulling up pictures of dead Russians and of bomb craters and all this stuff, as if to say, I'm not scared of an air raid siren. So we just, you know, took their lead. And like one guy was like, you know, it probably won't hit us. If we went to the bomb shelter, we would 100% survive, but it, we're pro- it's probably going to be fine. And I was like, okay, well, I guess we're just going to sit here and watch the game. The missile uh, the missile hit over by Lviv, hit the railroad tracks, and uh, everything was fine. So the normalization of, of just the sounds, the atmosphere, The siren right? freaked me out. That's like, that's some you want, you know, I mean, I, I don't ever want to hear that again, but, uh, you know, it all seemed very normal and just part of everyday life to them. So it, it was a very strange mix of, you know, the, the soldier, he seemed like his body was there with his friends watching a game, but his mind was back in those trenches with his brothers in arms because he kept, you know, just watching videos on his phone. Uh, at one point, just before kickoff, he FaceTimed the guys in the trenches on the front lines and, uh, and asked if they were watching football, and they all said yes. I'll tell you, uh, when they played the national anthem, everybody stood up and put their hands over their hearts and sang loudly. Amazing scenes, truly amazing, very emotional. I can't tell you what the words are in Ukrainian, but in English they mean Ukraine's freedom has not yet perished, nor has her glory. It gave me chill bumps. And, you know, when when this weird sports writing thing is over, that's certainly going to be in the top one or two of the most emotional things I've ever seen. And then they sat down and started watching the game. And uh, it was really beautiful. I mean, because some of it was they were being sports fans. They were complaining about the coaching. You know, (laughs) their inner Stephen A. Smith came out. And, like, you know, it was awesome. But they also, you know, they wanted to show us pictures of their kids, and they wanted to see pictures of ours. And they wanted to ask about what Americans thought about the war and what was going on there. So you guys are bonding over this game and possibly developing Ukrainian first take. And I just want to describe what is happening, right, in the match that you're watching together, because Ukraine jumps out to this 1-0 lead in the first half. And this is dropped in behind for Yamalenko, who puts Ukraine ahead. The veteran, the captain, gives Ukraine the lead, you have to say. 
they've deserved. And just look at the celebrations here at Hamden, and I suspect right around the globe too. And then they add another goal at the start of the second half. And so as Ukraine is starting to taste victory, and again, they are definitely the underdog here. What is everyone you're with doing? Well, there was a strict 11 o'clock curfew. And so that's the reason everybody was watching at home. I mean, the one thing the war took was the communal aspect of this. People watched it in little pods together. There was no big public gathering. Uh, One bar in town had it on. And you had to bring a sleeping bag because they were locking the door at 11 and you were spending the night there. And so we left during halftime. I didn't know. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah, And we went back to the Intercontinental where uh, if you want a further metaphor of how that is such a international bubble in the midst of uh, Ukraine's pain and suffering, they didn't have the game there. Mm. And so we're crowded around a table in this bar listening to the game on the radio. And... Uh, it was wild. I mean, it was like something, you know, the the tension of, I shouldn't say this given where we work, but sports is way more tense on the radio than on television Mm. because your imagination is way more vivid and powerful than any images a human being could show. Yeah, right. The theater of the mind in a theater of war, the aspect of this feeling like you're in the middle of, you know, older times, like this is the blitz or something. Yeah. We're sitting there, and that's funny you say that because our translator actually said, this is like olden times. This is World War II because we were crowded around a radio, except it was, of course, my iPhone. And But we're listening to the game on the radio, and, you know, it was incredibly tense. And just hooked off the line. Did it cross the line? Yes, it did. Scotland suddenly have hope. Scotland scored, and there was a moment before Ukraine clinched it where, you know, it looked like they could get an equalizer, and, you know, it had the feeling of the extra time isn't going to go Ukraine's way. So it was very tense at the end, and then it was over, and uh, there's this incredible video of Petrikov just pumping his fist and screaming into the night in Scotland with joy and rage and relief and everything you could imagine. That's one of those photographs that will come to, that'll be on the wall of every sports bar in Ukraine forever now. This has been some performance by a team who haven't played for six months. It's been incredible. Words don't do it justice. Coming up, Ukraine needs one more win to qualify for the World Cup. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. 
taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, right, you weren't just embedded with the locals in Ukraine. I know you were also embedded with the team itself for a good while. Also, getting to know the actual players and coaches as they set upon World Cup qualifying. And I just have to imagine that the pressure on them must have been intense in every way. Well, they... They shouldered a burden, frankly, that no one should have to shoulder except that it's a much less burden than people who are just going to buy bread in parts of their country. So, you know, the the time for complaining about burdens has passed. And this was the thing they could do. You know, their game was their weapon. They understood both the real and symbolic value of having a long six-month run-up to the World Cup and then taking the field in Qatar. And, I mean, everybody got it. And so that's what makes it so poignant, is that this isn't like, you know, something that somebody on a talk show had, like, theorized and put on them. This this was inside the deepest parts of their souls, and everybody got it. And every time any of the players talked about it, they got it and articulated it. You know, we sat with a player whose wife gave birth to his first child, a boy, like 10 hours before the war started. And uh, I mean, I remember the first night we brought our first child Wallace home and how just scared we were to be there alone with a human being. Yep. And this is this guy and his wife, and they're having to take their brand new baby into a bomb shelter that's cold. There are things like that. And then, you know, he's the backup goalie and he's sitting across from me like in a hotel room where we're doing an interview. And he's telling the story and I just have no point of intersection. You know, our, our Venn diagrams of understanding of what difficulty really is are just two circles next to each other. And so it was, I mean, all of that was incredibly moving. So so these matches were also supposed to be in March. It's worth pointing that out, too. They got postponed for the obvious reasons we've now described. How had they been training in that intervening time? The head of UEFA is uh, Slovenian, and he invited them to come stay there. And so they were in this super fancy five-star hotel with 
marble lobby that was playing like, you know, smooth jazz elevator music while the players are all, you know, eating breakfast, staring at their phones, reading about the war. It was very, very weird. You know, they, you have the Ukrainian team in the lobby looking at their phones and a bride gets off the elevator uh, in a wedding dress. And it was just like one, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino couldn't have come up with some of this stuff. I mean, it was just one <laughs> image after another of uh, that reinforced the huge gulf between their realities and the realities of everyone around them who wasn't Ukrainian. So that scene was in Slovenia where you first went to watch the team train and then, right, you go to Ukraine to watch them beat Scotland and get one win away from making the World Cup. You were there in that apartment. And then you go to watch the final deciding match, the thing that's going to determine all of this, this past Sunday in person against Wales in Cardiff, the Welsh capital. And Ukraine, again, is the underdog here. So what does the scene in Wales look like? What does it smell and sound like? The president of Ukraine, uh, Mr. Zelensky, had been to the front lines, had gotten a Ukrainian flag and had soldiers on the front lines write messages of support on it for the team, had delivered the flag to the coach and they had kept it in their locker room. And they all knew what the stakes were. Wales hasn't made a World Cup since 1958. And the last time they were in the World Cup, they were knocked out in the quarterfinals by a 17-year-old Pele. Like, that's how long ago it was. And mm. so in any other year, they would have been like the big sentimental darling. Yes. And so that stadium was rocking. I mean, it was as intense as a stadium, you know. It's sort of like terminal velocity. Like, once a stadium's loud, it's just loud. I mean, it was every bit of Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge. And uh, really intense and pouring-ass rain. And it was kind of chilly. And, you know, Petrikov never leaves the sideline. He's not wearing a coat. Finally, uh, one of his staff comes out and, like, physically puts a coat on him. And he's standing there screaming into the rain. And the place is shaking. And it's getting more and more tense and intense. And, you know, it's getting chippy. And everybody wants this. As Gareth Bale said, look, we, you know, we have all the sympathy in the world for the Ukrainians, but we came here to win. Yeah, that's Gareth Bale, Welsh captain, easily their best player, this global yeah. superstar who also plays for Real Madrid. And how would you describe what Gareth Bale does in the 34th minute? He's taking a free kick and aims it at the, the sort of bottom right of the goal, which I should say is sort of where the goalie was set up. Here's Gareth Bale! Lift off for Wales! The Ukrainian defender, uh, I think it was Yarmolenko, yes. was trying to head the ball away and just sort of didn't get all of it and headed it right into his own goal. Just a difficult moment here for Yarmolenko. He's trying to get that last minute defensive header from away from his goal, but it ends up going back across the goal into the back of the net. And I mean, all I can think about is no one should have to carry that with them. And, you know, one of the many things that uh, Petrikov did after the game was try to completely absolve Yarmolenko of anything and just say, somebody said, you know, what do you have to say about that? And he goes, all I can do is thank him for everything he's given his team and his country. 
yeah, officially this goes down as an own goal for Yarmolenko. And it is also the only goal scored as the game ticks down to those final minutes. It was very clear in the last minutes that these were two teams who were, this is such a cliche, but I've never felt this more than I did uh, in Wales, that they left it on the field. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but they, they no, just it, did. No, it feels, it feels and, like the sort of story where all of the reasons you might use the cliches, the hyperbole we traffic in in normal like American domestic peacetime sports, this is actually kind of the reference point. No, it, This is actually what it looks like. This is like. what it looks like to leave everything on the field, to be spent. There's the whistle. Wales are back at the World Cup after 64 years. And amidst their euphoria, spare a thought for Ukraine. Amidst their nightmare, the end of this football fairy tale. So much to admire in the extraordinary defiance of a proud nation. You know, one of the things that was really beautiful that made me tear up was the Ukraine fans started doing, you know, so you remember that Iceland where they would clap their hands? Yeah. So the Ukraine fans started doing that and the players were doing that after the game. I mean, I'm about to cry now talking about it. And the, the whole stadium of Welch fans started doing it too. They had just won a trip to the World Cup and they were celebrating their opponents because everybody got it. And... I just stood there and the stands was just shaking my head. I mean, it was, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever see a game like that again. No, I mean, I, the, the hair on my arm is kind of sticking up as you describe this, right? It was unbelievable. So what happens now, right? What happens now for this team, for the people of Ukraine? So, you know, they, they have uh, other games that are not World Cup qualifiers, and then I think they all will go back to their clubs. In August, the Ukrainian League will start, but it will happen abroad, and these guys will go to their teams, and I think they'll keep playing. I imagine Petrikov is going back to Kiev. Uh, that is his home. I can't imagine him not going back to Kiev. I think for the country, it's... You know, they're a hundred and something days into this war and, you know, it, it's settling in for the long haul. And, you know, another one of the things that was so poignant is, you know, we're at the post-game press conference. You know, you, know, you and I have been to a million of those. And uh, they take questions from people in the room and then they have the Ukrainian media on Zoom. And they go to the first question from a Ukrainian journalist for Petrikov. And he doesn't ask a question. First, he thanks Petrikov, and then he basically begs the foreign journalist within sound of his voice to not forget. You know, he literally says, remember. You know, remember what is happening in Ukraine. And you got the sense that they knew that that they had people's attention. And uh, that attention had helped them tremendously in the first hundred and something days of the war. And that the more time that passes, the harder it is to keep people's attention. And so the, the Ukrainian journalist question slash prayer 
in the first moments after this game was over was don't forget us. I mean, you've covered the deeper meanings of sports for your entire life, but to cover a story like this during a time of war, what have you learned about what sports means to a country like Ukraine right now? I mean, it it both means absolutely nothing and curiously everything. Because, you know, they needed a win, just one little stupid win as proof that hope can triumph, as proof that the things that you want from life can be delivered. And frankly, just something to celebrate in the coming six months. And they were so close to having a you know, parallel narrative of uh, that whenever things got dark or bleak, they could, you know, talk about the upcoming World Cup. And you could feel the promise of that. I certainly could feel the promise of that sitting in Kiev, watching the game just in an apartment. And you could feel the promise of that completely evaporating in Cardiff in the moments after that game so much so that 30 minutes after it was over, you got the sense that the, the folks on the team couldn't even remember what the hope felt like in the first place. And it was just gutting. And, you know, the they, they were trying to qualify for the World Cup to represent a country that might not exist when the World Cup happens. And they failed. And they knew it. And nobody made any excuses. It was one of the most gracious things I've ever seen. Uh, all of these whiny American coaches need to take a lesson. Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher need to grow <laughs> the f*** up. Because this coach stood up after his press conference was over, after he had just failed in his stated mission to take the team to the World Cup, and he thanked the people of Wales for their support and the way they treated his team. And I want to express uh, my gratitude to Wales. I wish your team all possible luck in the World Cup. And again, Ukraine is very grateful to Wales. Thank you. I mean, it was one of the bravest you know, let's keep that word in context because we're talking about Ukraine, but it was one of the classiest things I'd ever seen. But the players themselves, right, are, are feeling how? How would you describe how this was landing on them? Petrikov described the dressing room as dead silent. And the players... Uh, just looked gutted walking through the rain to the bus where they were greeted by all of the Ukrainian fans who were cheering and asking for autographs. And they got on the bus and the bus pulled away and the Ukrainians who had managed to be there waved flags and cheered and applauded as the bus pulled out into the, the evening. And it was, you know, we just stood there shaking in the rain watching. And uh, you don't even know what you say. You know, it's one of those things you don't... It, 
It was so intimate it, it, that it felt like we shouldn't have been watching. Mm. You know, and uh, there wasn't that much difference in that moment. It f- didn't feel like between players and fans. It just felt like a bunch of citizens from Ukraine who were in the same place. Right, Thompson, thank you for telling us this story and get them safe, man. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure as always. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.